Well, dear friends, let us turn now in the Word of God for our instruction, for our worship, for our praise, and for our meditation. Let us turn to the book of 2 Samuel and the chapter 15. The book of 2 Samuel and chapter 15. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Let us come and hear together God's precious, holy word. The Lord, give us hearts to receive his word. And it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man had a controversy, came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, Moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so, that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And it came to pass after forty years that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode in Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said unto him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went two hundred men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Ahitophel the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. And there came a messenger to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee. For we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. And the king went forth and all his household after him. And the king left ten women, which were concubines, to keep the house. And the king went forth, and the concubine, <clears throat> and the king went forth, and all the people after him, and tarried in a place that was far off. And all his servants passed on beside him. And all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the Gittites, six hundred men, which came after him from Gath, 
passed on before the king. Then said the king to Ittai the Gittite, Wherefore goest thou also with us? Return to thy place, and abide with the king, for thou art a stranger, and also an exile, whereas thou camest but yesterday. Should I this day take, make thee to go up and down with us? Seeing I go whither I may, return thou and take back thy brethren. Mercy and truth be with thee. And Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord liveth, and as my lord the king liveth, surely in what place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also will thy servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go and pass over. And Ittai the Gittite passed over, and all his men, and all the little ones that were with him. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. And lo, Zadok also, and all the Levites were with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God. And Abiathar went up until all the people had done passing out of the city. And the king said unto Zadok, Carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he thus say, I have no delight in thee, behold, here am I, let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. The king said also unto Zadok the priest, Art thou not, art not thou a seer? Return into the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Ahimaz thy son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will tarry in the plain of the wilderness, until there come a word from you to certify me. Zadok therefore and Abiathar carried the ark of God again to Jerusalem, and they tarried there. And David went up by the ascent of the Mount Olivet, and wept as he went up, and had his head covered, and he went barefoot. And all the people that was with him covered every man his head, and they went up, weeping as they went up. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators. With Absalom, David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And it came to pass that when David was come up, come to the top of the mount where he worshipped God, behold, Hushai, the archachite, came to meet him with his coat rent and the earth upon his head, unto whom David said, if thou passeth on with me, then thou shalt be a burden unto me. But if thou return to the city and say unto Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant hitherto, so will I now also be thy servant. Then mayest thou for me defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. And as thou, hast thou not there with these Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Therefore, it shall be 
that what thing soever thou shalt hear out of the king's house, thou shalt tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them ye shall send unto me everything that ye can hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Amen. This is the word of God. May the Lord be pleased to bless the reading of his holy word. All to the glory of his name, and dear friends, to the needful case of our never-dying souls, and all to God's glory. Let us pray, let us seek him now this morning. Well, dear congregation, I would like to now direct your prayerful attention to those words that I read to you in your hearing there in Second Samuel and the chapter 15. Second Samuel and the chapter 15. We arrive now in our week-by-week study of God's Word here in chapter 15, but I direct your thoughts back to last week where we considered David's murderous son, Absalom, in the chapter 14, who had killed his brother, Amnon. And remember at the end of the chapter how Absalom pretended to love his father, King David. Now we see in this chapter that that simply can never be true. Absalom never loved his father, David, the king. Well, remember what David did. David banished his son, Absalom, for two years, although he allowed him to live in the city of Jerusalem for two years, but he would not allow him to come near the king's palace. And that was all really, uh, in a sense, in order to sort of give credence to the fact that David was uh, being a man of justice. But if he truly was a man of justice at this time, we know essentially David was a man of justice, but he is weak at the moment. He is not meek. Meekness truly is accepting our own faults and acknowledging them, but not excusing other people's sins at the same time. Now David should have brought his son Absalom to justice, and that would have meant capital punishment. It would have meant the death sentence, but David did not do that. Instead, David keeps him at arm's length in Jerusalem, so it looked as if David was being a man of justice. Now, of course, David was a man of justice, but not concerning his son. And as we thought last week, we should love our children in a way that honors God, even if it means something like this, the death penalty, because we never, ever abrogate God's law even when it comes to our own family. Remember the words there in Genesis 9 and the verse 5, how the Lord said to Noah after the flood, and surely your blood for your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it, at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. And then the Lord added these words, Whosoever sheddeth man's blood by man, shall his blood be shed for the image of God. 
made he man. Now David is setting a very bad example. And it is now coming to haunt David. As I said last week, David now has a viper in his bosom. Absalom. At this point, David is very weak instead of being meek. Now you remember last week how Absalom, he was frankly a liar. Remember how he said how he wished that he had been back in Gershom? Notice the verse 32. And Absalom answered Joab. Of course, Joab is David's military commander. Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may send thee to the king to say, Wherefore am I come from Gashor? It had been good for me to have been there still. This son, Absalom, is arrogant. He's speaking to Joab as if he is his servant. It's awful, isn't it? I've called for you to go and to speak to my father, essentially, that I may see him. What arrogance. Here's a murderous son. Here is a son that says here, it had been better that I still were in Gershom. Now he knew that was a lie. He knew it was a lie because back in Gershon, he had no influence there. No influence whatsoever. And he treats here Joab as a servant and has no respect for his father. Now, as we remarked last week, Absalom is an exceedingly handsome man, but he was spoiled. Spoiled rotten. He was, his, as it were, his father's pride and joy. We saw how he was a man of vanity, how he weighed his hair every year. And I remind you that long hair, men, is an abomination to the Lord. This is not something sanctioned in the Word of God. A woman's hair is her glory. It's not for a man uh, to have this. But he was an exceedingly handsome man and used to getting his own way, getting what he wanted from his father, spoilt to the core. Now, as soon as Joab doesn't allow him and David doesn't allow him to see the king, what does he do? He starts setting Joab's barley fields alight, ablaze. Eventually, Joab gives in. And uh, he says in verse 32b there of chapter 14, Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. He's pretending as if he loves his father David. And then he says this, and if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. Well, he knows his father's not going to kill him. He had done it a long time ago. If David was really going to kill him, he had done it a long time ago. Absalom, you see, knew just how to pull the strings. He knew how to get his own way. He's even saying to Joab, you know, if I'm really guilty, of course he's guilty. He's killed his brother. And there's no remorse, there's no shame, there's no repentance in this ungodly man's life. And he knew very well that David wouldn't kill him because David had an unhealthy love for this son. It wasn't a godly love. Remind you, true love loves in God's way. We must love our children the right way. Love them in the truth. Don't negate truth from your child's life by the way that you love them. 
David, again, was weak here. He's not meek. True meekness is acknowledging sin. And you see, David, maybe he's worried. Absalom can say, well, you murdered a man. That was true. Meekness will acknowledge that. But let us not be weak. Now, what we see in this chapter, you notice, we see here Absalom, how wicked he is. How he is now working against his father to get the throne, to get to the throne. Now, how does he begin? He begins by stealing the hearts of the people. Well, he knows how to twist his father's arm. He knows how to get his way with Joab. He knows how to get his way with David. Now, you notice in the verses 1 to 6, what we see here is image building when it comes to Absalom. This is what he does. He's trying to build and to portray an image before the men of Israel in order to become king. You see, he realizes that if he is going to become king, he needs to create a certain image. And so, what is that image? Well, it's an image, first of all, of grandeur and honor. Verse 1, And it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. That is not because he was engaged in a battle at all. Everything was peaceful now in Jerusalem. But he is setting forth this whole idea that he is somebody of importance. But here, friends, is a criminal. Here is a murderer. But he is trying to set himself forth before the people of Israel as somebody who is important. And you see, this is deceitful. Here we have a pretense, don't we, of grandeur and honor. He is parading and postulating to be the king. This is what he's doing. He is pretending to have power. Notice the, the horses, the 50 men. Well, where did he get them from? Obviously, everything is his father's. Of course, the princes were assigned certain things, but he's got to parade everything here. He's got a great entourage of men. And that's wherever he goes. The entire goal is to project an image of a king. And so you see, when the time comes, they say, oh, well, we, we already see somebody who is acting like a king. He looks like a king. Let's choose him. Well, this mindset, let me say, is very true in the world today. Looks and images, we must say, can be very deceptive, though. We have to be very careful. You know, even the false church. We have the Pope, who uh, don't want to pick on the Pope or Rome today, but friends, parading around in some carriage, uh, parading around in white, as if there's authority with God. I don't want to decry these things, but friends, the whole image of Rome, and I have come out of Rome, as it were, a young boy saved out of that diabolical religion of imagery and projecting an image. It projects Rome an image of power with God. But really, quite frankly, it's powerless, isn't it? The church of Rome is powerless. God does not hear the prayers of Rome. It is in darkness. Jeremiah 17.10, we read, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings, and so on. Now, 
God is going to bring this man, Absalom, to naught. He seems to gain popularity, but it's short-lived. He seems to have power, but it will be taken away. It's interesting in those words there in Jeremiah 17, the verse 11 goes on to read, which is in context, as the partridge sitteth on eggs and hatcheth them not, so he that getteth riches and not by right shall leave them in the midst of his days and at his end shall be a fool. And that is exactly what happens to Absalom. Absalom is going to be snatched away by God. The judgment of God is going to fall upon him. And this man is going to come to naught. Whatever riches he has, even at this point, is from his father. This man, quite frankly, should be dead. He should be six feet under. And his soul in hell at this point. The Lord tries the hearts of men. And this man, by God, will be brought to none. Now notice, secondly, in all of his postulation and pretending to be great, there's a great pretense of how he apparently cares for the people of God and how he apparently cares for justice. Notice in verse 2, And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king, that's to David, for judgment. Then Absalom called unto him and said, What city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. Now, he'd be wasting his time if it was somebody else from another place. And he knew very well if he could just speak to some of these Israelites that had a difficulty, and they were going to the king, And he could say, in in essence, your case is well. I'll hear you. I'll take care of you. You see, Absalom, notice there, asks questions at the gate, trying to find out who had a problem. And uh, when he did, what he did is he sowed discord. And one of the things that the Lord says that he hates is a backbiting tongue. And he that sows discord. And that is exactly what Absalom is doing here. Verse 3, And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good. I mean, he's not even really investigated the case thoroughly, has he? And right. But notice what he says. And this is all meant to undermine his father, the king. But there is no man found deputed of the king to hear thee. Oh, there are no honest judges. And you know what? Even if the king were to hear you, they won't hear you right. This is what he's saying. In other words, he said to men who had a complaint, you have a sure case. That's what he says here. Thy matters are right. You have a sure case. There's no way you can lose this. But by the way, there's nobody honest. In my father's court. And my father's not overseeing matters. And of course, sinners being sinners, friends, want to believe this. These people coming with a controversy want to believe this. They want to believe that. Especially this Absalom. His, uh, look, he's got great wealth. Fifty horses. He looks successful. 
He looks powerful. And Absalom says, I have a valid case. Well, you can see what he's doing. As I said last week, Absalom was an obvious rallying point for those even who were disgruntled with David or those who were just crooked. That's what he's doing. Now the world is very much like this even today, isn't it? The world will promise you all kinds of things. Look at all these adverts sometimes. We don't have a television anymore, but there are, for instance, insurance companies that will try to make out as if you're always the innocent person. And you can get this claim. You are being unjustly dealt with. That's the world, isn't it? But friends, these things will come to naught. Now, on the back of this, thirdly, notice Absalom's self-promotion and suggestion that he should be judge over all. Verse 4. Absalom said, moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, that I would do him justice. You see, I mean, he, he, he doesn't hide anything, does he? He is doing everything so obviously and so quickly. He's not wasting any time. He's not letting people sort of conjure up things in their own imagination. He's saying, basically, look, I'm the man. Look no further. Why are you wasting your time? In other words, he's stealing the hearts here of the people. If I were king and if I were judge, now what were the requirements of the character of a judge in the word of God? Well, if you turn to Exodus 18, verse 21, God gives us, as he gave Moses, the requirements of a judge, the characteristics Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men. These are men who are able to discern. They have a knowledge of things. They, they're competent. I mean, they can count. Two and two is four. They can make connections between things. Such as fear God. Another qualification there. Not only is he able and intelligent, but he, essentially he fears God. It's one of the requirements of a judge. Men of truth, hating covetousness. Now this is exactly what Absalom was about. Absalom was a man of covetousness. He wanted his father's throne. He wanted to be king. He's the very last person. And here, friends, is not somebody here that has escaped justice? Is Absalom not a man who should have been on the gallows? Is Absalom not a man who should have been destroyed? Yes. What hypocrisy. What utter hypocrisy. The irony is that Absalom was a man who had run away from justice. Far from being a man who was a man of justice, he killed his brother. And then he took advantage of his father the king. And now he's lying. Saying that his father's courts and his father are unjust. 
And he pretended to long to see his father's face. He pretended that he actually cared about the people. Because he didn't care at all. He didn't care about God. He didn't care about justice. He just cared about himself. And let me say, friends, that is by and large the mindset. But to varying degrees in the world. Look out for number one. I'm amazed. I hear of people buying things from Argos, using them, taking them back after they've used it. That's the world. That's society today, isn't it? Dishonest. Looking out for numbers, number one. Somebody gives you extra money at the checkout. It's not common in the world to give the money back and say, by the way, You've given me too much, but they're very quick to complain when they're shortchanged. That's the world, isn't it? That's the mindset. Always looking out for number one. And when it came to this man, there was no sorrow. He came before his father and he said, did he not? Notice the end of the chapter um, 14 there. If I have done evil, let my father kill me. He knew he had done evil. His own record is proof of that. The record of his guilt. He knew he was a guilty man. But this man is a man of duplicity and a man of unspeakable betrayal. And very often the two go hand in hand. You're going to be dishonest about yourself. You'll be dishonest about other people too. You know, people say, well, that's human nature. Well, that's no, that's the sin nature, isn't it? To be human is not to be sinful. We're fallen sinners, aren't we? You often hear people say, well, we're only human after all. My friends, we're fallen, guilty sinners before a holy God. Now, you notice in the verse 5 how Absalom continues day after day. And it was so, verse 5 that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, that's to pay him respect, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. What a show of modesty and apparent care. It's unspeakable, isn't it? But where's he been all the while? This is all a charade. This is all an act. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. And then we read these solemn words. So... Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now he is saying, essentially, this is my manifesto. If I'm king, I'll look after you. I really care for you. He wasn't a caring king. He only cared for himself. Now, secondly, this morning, notice in verse 7 to 12, we have Absalom's wicked plot and conspiracy to overthrow his father, David the king. And he, he, he goes on lying. He, the first thing we see now, there is an apparent vow that he made. We don't know for sure whether he actually made this vow, but he said he made a vow. But I want you to notice the hypocrisy of the vow itself. And this is always the way of, of those who are unregenerate. Even when they make a promise, and here we're assuming that maybe this is true, I don't know. Heaven will reveal, did he actually make a vow to God? when he was banished in Gershom. 
And it came to pass after forty years that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. The first thing I want us to notice here that this alleged vow is really uh, quite ungodly. He claimed to have made a vow, but look at what the vow entailed. If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then will then I will serve the Lord. In other words, God, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. That's the way of so many, isn't it? Lord, you give me this, I'll serve you. This is the unregenerate soul. Now, if you notice here, the 40 years being referred to here are not 40 years since chapter 14 into chapter 15, and there are many reasons why we can state that that's simply not the case. And there have been those that say, well, there must be a scribal error here, but it can't be. What is being referred to here is the time of 40 years since the first anointing that David was anointed with by Samuel. David was anointed three times. What are those three times? When he was anointed by Samuel, first of all, and then he was anointed to be king over Judah, and then finally, the third anointing, when he was anointed king over all of Israel. And we believe, with the best commentators, that this really refers to the time of that first anointing. And uh, that seems to fit in with the chronology of all that will take place in the subsequent chapters. Now, here David, after this time, and this is significant, what is he doing? Here is a vow, and this uh, young man who is postulating and presenting himself to be the next king, well, he, he starts to do this. And David, it seems, is believing him that there was a true oath. Now, a true oath? But hold on a minute. Absalom, there's been no repentance. There's been no remorse for your sins. But David, it seems, at any rate here, now sends Absalom away with his blessing. This seems bizarre. David, what are you thinking? Verse 9, And the king said unto him, Go in peace. And that really essentially means with God's blessing. So he arose and went to Hebron. Now, straight away in verse 10, what we find out is that Absalom, well, he, he may have paid the vow or if there was a vow. But what does he do as soon as he gets to Hebron? Well, he sends out spies. He's not gone there essentially for religious purposes to pay a vow, but he has gone to do some very ungodly business, and that is to send spies throughout Israel. And basically it is this. There's a message. There's going to be a, a message to the people. What is the message? But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth 
in Hebron. In other words, to these, as they described here, simple men, when the time comes that there is a revolt or there is a king apparent going to be or should be made king, when the signal is given, just say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. He is the apparent successor. Sometime in the future. Now, it's supposed to be what we call here self-fulfilling, because nobody is supposed to resist this command. Say, the king reigns. But of course, it was all imposed upon them. These people were very simple. They're just doing what they told to do. They didn't know him, really. They didn't know his heart. Well, what happens as time goes on? Well, Absalom, he is an absolutely wicked man. I want you to see what he does is he sends for David's trusted counselor, Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel, as we will see, is very much like Judas. Very much like Judas. In fact, this man, he betrays David and he ends up hanging himself, just like Judas. There are tremendous spiritual parallels here with the happenings in the New Testament. And this passage, just as David crossed the brook Kedron, so did the Lord Jesus. And what we see here is this trusted counselor Ahithophel, this shrewd man, he abandons David. He knew, of course, all the secrets of David. 2 Samuel 11.3, something is very interesting also about this man, Ahithophel. He is actually the grandfather of Bathsheba. Have a look with me, 2 Samuel 11.3. You've got to connect two verses of Scripture, uh, and you'll see exactly the proof of this. And this may be one of the reasons why he abandons David. 2 Samuel 11.3, And David sent and inquired after the woman, And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, keep that in mind. and Turn to 2 Samuel 23, verse 34, and you'll see who this man Eliam is. We read there, at the end of that verse, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gileonite. So there's the connection. This man, Ahithophel, is the grandfather of Bathsheba. And one of the reasons, therefore, he may be, have abandoned David at this point. You see, Elam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gileonite, is that maybe he was just angered over what David had done. To Bathsheba. Now, you can see in a sense how David's sin is visiting him again and God chastening him. Well, at any rate, it was not right for him to do this. It was treasonous, it was terrible. And this may be one of the reasons why David wrote in Psalm 41, verse 9, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, 
has lifted up his heel against me. Now we know ultimately that that is fulfilled in who? In Judas. Judas Iscariot. Remember as he dipped sop, as he took of the bread. Judas Iscariot, that familiar friend of the Lord Jesus, one of the twelve. And here Ahithophel betrays him. You see, these are tremendous parallels. You know, we don't need to do spiritual gymnastics really to draw such conclusions here. It's obvious, it should be obvious from the text. Now, notice, what we see here, David is being betrayed for his sin. And, and that's true, if this is the reason why Ahithophel has abandoned him, but not in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was betrayed for his people's sins. Not that he ever did any sin. Can you see the parallels? But the stark differences between the two. Now notice verse 12. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. So he sends for this faithful counselor of David's. This is unspeakably wicked. Knowing all that Absalom had done. Now notice, and the conspiracy was strong. This is this movement against David. For the people increased continually with Absalom. Now this was a very calculated move on the part of Absalom. He was shrewd. And, uh, well, he asks now for this shrewd counselor. And, and, you know, Absalom, what is he doing? He's just building up and bolstering his image all the more, isn't he? I've now got my father's counselor. You see, he's setting himself up for king. But something else There's a complete lack of discernment, isn't there, on the part of the people? Surely, they saw Absalom for who he was. What had Absalom ever done for Israel? What had Absalom really ever done for his father? And one thing we can glean from this is how fickle men really are in this world. Even intelligent men like Ahithophel. Men are fickle. Why? Because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's the same today, friends. People are easily hoodwinked also, just as Israel were, by clever arguments, by a staged presence of authority, by political stunts, and so on. Can we not see the blindness and the ignorance of Israel even at this time? Well, we ought to see it. And you know, sometimes churches can be blind to things that ought to be so obvious. Now, when it came to the test, there were people who were loyal to David. There were people. And we see it in the verses that follow. What we see in verses... 13 to the verse 18 is David despised and rejected of men. But I want you to think, first of all, before we come to that, David, of course, was not a sinless man. David surely had his faults. 
But as you looked at David's life, surely the general tenor of that man's life was not bad. David was a man after God's own heart. And that's what you ought to look at or look for in God's people. You're not looking for perfection. But you're looking for the presence of his grace in his people's hearts. It's always what we ought to be looking for. But of course, the Lord Jesus had no fault. And how much, we, we say it's heinous that people should, as it were, turn their backs against David. And many did. Many of Israel did. But how much more heinous is it that men despise Jesus Christ in whom there never was any guile in his mouth. I mean, you can turn through the pages of Scripture, and just as Pilate said, "In I find no fault in him. There's no fault in Christ. How much more heinous when it comes to Christ. Now let's turn our minds here to David, verses 13 to 18, being despised and rejected of men. And there came a messenger to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, for we shall not escape from Absalom. He knew now Absalom was not wasting any time. This treacherous son of his would stop at nothing to steal the crown. He realized that this son didn't really love him after all. And so what we see in verses 15 to 18 is David departing, from Jerusalem, and of course he leaves ten of his concubines there to keep the house. But of course what happens? Absalom ends up laying with these ten concubines. and disgraces him, disgraces his father, disgraces himself, disgraces Israel. And you notice in verse 18, And his servants passed on beside him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the Gittites, six hundred men which came after him, from Gath, passed on before the king. There were many loyal among David, but the vast majority of Israel really turned their back on David at this point. And it's sad. It's always the way, I think. You know, even amongst Christendom, there are many who profess Christ, but they're easily hoodwinked. They're not really saved, not really converted. Now, fourthly, comfort from Ittai. Ittai here, you notice in verse 19, the Gittite, he's a a new follower, he's comparatively new. And David says, why are you following me? Well, what is his answer? Verse 21, and Ittai answered the king and said, as the Lord liveth, and as my Lord the king liveth, surely in what place my Lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also will thy servant be. Isn't that wonderful? My dear friends, does this not remind us of Ruth? You think of Ruth. What's the difference between Ruth and Orpah? You remember and Naomi? Well, one was saved and one was not. This man, Ittai, recognizes the true king. He's not known David for long. Compare him to Ahithophel, who's known him for so long. And friends, there's a warning. You see, you, you, you can 
be in fellowship with some people, and you can be in the church for a long time, but time will tell, time will expose, won't it? Who are the Lord's true followers? This man, Ittai, he could see. He could see David was genuine. David wasn't a perfect man, but he could see David was genuine. And friends, when you see something that is genuine, and you see genuine Christians, money can't buy that. Can't buy it. Can't buy real fellowship. Loyalty. Loyalty can't be bought. David, did he not give Ahithophel? Did he not give Joab? Did he not give all these other men wealth? That can't buy loyalty. Can it? It's something that God does in the heart of men. He opens our eyes to see certain things. Well, Ittai recognized the real king. And David, well, he does give him a work to do. He does say to him in verse 22, David said to Ittai, go and pass over, and Ittai, Ittai passed over. Although Ittai wanted to be with him, he still obeyed the Lord David's command, didn't he? And, and, and that's true, I would say, for anybody really, we're thinking here of David as a type of Christ. Of course, he's not the perfect man, but those who are Christ's, we may not always agree with what the Lord says in his word, but we do it. We obey, don't we? And that was his spirit. Now, the Brook Kedron here, we're told here that David passed over with all of his people. Verse 23, and all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the Brook Kedron. Now, we know from John's Gospel, John chapter 18, verse 1, that the Lord Jesus passed over the book Kedron. It was a filthy, stinking little rivulet that most of the refuse of the city went into that place. And we know from the Psalm 110, right at the end, that the king, the Lord Jesus, would drink from the brook. You think of it. Christ drank from the brook of the stench of men. As he looked, spiritually speaking, into that cup that he would have to drink on behalf of his people. He would have to drink up the dregs, as it were, of our sin and bear the wrath of Almighty God for it. David is crossing the brook Kidron for his own sins, of course. He should have dealt with Absalom, but he didn't. Right? And as a result, he's having to cross over. But the Lord Jesus had to cross in order to deal with our sins. There's a parallel, but there's a difference as well. Now, David was here being chastened for his sin and for his toleration of Absalom, but Christ let me put it to you this way, died for sin. That's the difference. But David here is suffering or being chastened in order to die to sin. You see the difference? In order to be conformed to Christ. We could say that even David here, we see him weeping as he mounts the Mount Olivet. And of course, that's where our Lord was. 
David is weeping. He's lamenting his sin. He's not feeling sorry for himself. But he knows that all of this is is happening because of his sin. But Christ suffered for us to deal with the consequence of our sin. That's the difference. David is being chastened for his sin so that sin might be rooted out of him. That he might live a life more in principled obedience to God. He should have chastened his son if he really loved his son. shouldn't have excused his son's sin. Now you see, David, what a different spirit he had to his son Absalom. If you come down to the verse 25, the king says to Zadok the priest, carry back the ark of God into the city. Now notice, if I, find, if I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he thus say, I have no delight in thee, behold, here am I, let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. Such a different attitude, isn't it, to Absalom's oath. Lord, if you take me back to Jerusalem, I'll serve you. But David says here the complete opposite. If, Lord, you do not take me back, and, Lord, if you destroy me, so it be, Lord. That is the mark, is it not, of a true child of God. David was willing to honor God no matter what the consequences. And that, let me say, friends, is the spirit of every true child of God. Didn't Job say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him? And that should be ours. And so you notice verse 29, David sends the ark and the priest back to Jerusalem, and they go. But David, he has a plan. He sends men back, and of course Absalom is now in the king's palace, and he... he, 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 he lays with the concubines in the next passage, and it's almost as if he's running the show now back in Jerusalem. And Ahithophel goes back with Absalom to Jerusalem. But David sends another man, as it were, as a spy in the camp, to tell the secrets and to, as it were, overthrow the council of Ahithophel. Now verse 31. And one told David saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. David doesn't despair. And here's the mark of a true believer. He casts his problem upon the Lord. And says, Lord, I recognize all of this has taken place. David acknowledges, really, that he is to blame. See him going up to the Mount Olivet, weeping, covering his face, going barefoot. It's a sign of humility. But what does David pray? Lord, would you overthrow this wicked traitor's counsel to Absalom? In other words, he's going to give counsel. But Lord, would you overthrow Notice David is then, verse 32, met by and comforted by his loyal friend Hushai, who had agreed to defeat the council of Ahithophel if David didn't return 
to Israel. Verse 32, And it came to pass that when David was come on top of the mount where he worshipped God, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat rent and earth upon his head. He was obviously grieved at all that had happened. And now you notice, David gives him instruction and uh, tells him how he should defeat the council of Ahithophel. It's there in those verses, and un- verse 33, And unto whom David said, If thou passest on with me, then thou shalt be a burden unto me. But if thou return to the city, say unto Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant therein. He's, so he goes back pretending to be Absalom's servant, but he's really not. Well, Absalom deserves this. Absalom's stolen David's counselor. And David is, by the wisdom of God, sending in one who's going to, he's betrayed his son. Now, doesn't he deserve to be overthrown? Yes. Crookedly, he deserves to be dealt with. The Lord, does he not say, with the froward, he will prove himself froward? That's what the scriptures say. And God will overturn. And this is exactly what happens. This man here, Hushai, he gives the king counsel and overthrows the council of wicked Ahithophel. Now, what happens, if you just turn to chapter 16, verse 20, we'll see it next week. David sends Hushai back to Jerusalem as a spy. And uh, Absalom is taken charge there. And Ahithophel gives Absalom the most wicked counsel. He tells him to lie with all the concubines. But what happens at the end of this? Second Samuel sixteen twenty. Then said Absalom to Ahithophel, Give counsel among you, what shall we do? What we shall do? And Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Go in unto thy father's concubines, which he hath left to keep the house. And all Israel shall hear that thou art abhorred by them. This was the most wicked and foolish counsel. What happens to this man, Ahithophel? Notice chapter 17, verse 23. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass ass, and arose and got him home to his house, to his city, and put his household in order and hanged himself and died. Now, who does that remind you of? Judas Iscariot. Well, the lesson as we close, friends, first of all, beware. There are many like Absalom who will do anything to persuade men to get what they want in life. Just beware of that. There are many, and there will even be those in the church, in professing Christendom, who will do anything to persuade men to what they want in life. Power, prestige, a name. Absalom pretended to care for the people, but he didn't. He didn't care for God. He didn't care for honor. He certainly didn't care for justice. Because he would have seen himself to be an unjust man and worthy of God's wrath. Secondly, beware of the mass majority. As we think here of Israel, they were fickle in their loyalty to David. 
David the Anointed. And there will be many in Christendom who profess to have a loyalty to Christ. But they're not of Christ. They don't have the spirit of Ittai. They don't have the spirit of Hushai. They don't have the spirit of David. Thirdly, true loyalty like Ittai the Gittite had to David, who was comparatively new, is not by man, but by the grace of God. Ittai, it says here, he had only just come. He was a, a complete outsider, a foreigner. What is that? It is regeneration. It's the new birth. It's a new heart. It's not longevity of service that makes a man honorable, but it is a new heart that makes a man different, just as Ruth, just as Ruth differed to Orpah. Remember, we should be able to distinguish the difference. Whereas Ahithophel, he had known David so long. A long-standing friend. My friend proved to be a long-standing enemy in the end. He didn't look like he was the enemy, but he was the enemy all along, just like Judas. Lastly, prayer to God is not the only thing we can do, but it is the best thing we can do when we are faced in the darkest hours of the trials of this life. It's the best thing we can do. It's not the last thing we should do. That's what David did. Lord, overturn the counsel of Ahithophel. Lord, overturn it. Turn it for good. And you think of it, in the darkest hour, what was the Lord Jesus Christ doing? There, you've just got to read the Psalms. He was praying on the cross. He knew what he was facing, but not for his own sins. And let me say this in closing. God may chasten us because he loves us. God was chastening David because he loved him. And he loved him so much that he had to bring him through this darkest hour. And we will hear David cry, even lamenting for Absalom. But in the end, joy came in the morning. But remember this, Christ came to bear the sins of his people, that he may chasten us, that we may not trust in men, but that we may trust in him. Not just now, but for all eternity. Thank the Lord for his faithfulness and his love in Jesus Christ. Amen.